as we prepare to hear what the Lord would say to us today, we're going to go to God in prayer just one more time. But I want you to open to the book of 1 John, chapter 4. That's, that's the tiny John, little John, in the very back. We'll get to big John later. 1 John, chapter 4. And just hold your place there, if you will. I'll, I'll catch up to you in, in just a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I just thank you for the privilege of sharing the word with your people. God, I am so grateful that as we open this book, it's alive. The Bible says that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. This book will penetrate our hearts in our lives today if we'll allow it to. Father, I pray today that as we open your word, Lord, we would also open our hearts. We would open our minds, Lord God, to receive from you. God, have your way in this place today. Speak to every one of us, God. Speak to me, Lord, and speak through me. Lord, even if there's any final editing you need to do, Lord, I submit myself to you today. Speak through me today. God, we just cherish your word. We want to honor your word always. In Jesus' name. And everybody say amen. 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 Between the years of 1954 and 19, or 1854 rather, and 1929, about 200,000 orphans and abandoned children in eastern cities were placed on westbound trains and shipped all across the United States in search of homes and families. 200,000. Many of those children had lost their parents due to epidemics. Some had lost them uh, due to the harsh realities of immigrant, immigrant life. Many of the children were orphaned because of the Civil War. Others because of alcohol. But one thing was in common. All of these children needed a home. They needed somewhere to live. So in groups of 30 and 40 at a time, these kids were corralled into trains... And they were sent westbound across the United States. It was the orphan train. And at each stop, the children were lined up on platforms to be looked over and evaluated by potential parents. You can imagine the scene in your mind as the kids come out. The potential parents had the opportunity to ask questions about the history and the health of the children. They, they looked them over and... Sometimes they would even inspect their teeth to see what kind of condition they were in. If the children were accepted, immediately they would go from there to their new home. But if they were not chosen, they would get back on the train and just go to the next town. So on and on, these kids would move westward until hopefully, finally, they were either put in a home to have parents or they were sent to another orphanage. Well, Lee Nailing was one of those kids. He was one of six siblings. But when his mother died, it was just too much for his dad to handle all of them. So, so Lee and his two younger brothers were put on the train. And they were sent westward. They left a train station in New York City bound for Texas. And the day of their departure, 
his biological father put a little pink envelope in Lee's hand. And he wrote his, uh, his father's name and address on it. He said, when you get to your final destination, I want you to write me. So Lee wanted to make sure he didn't lose that. So he put it inside his coat pocket and he got on the train. Him and his two little brothers, they, they fell asleep on the long train ride. And when Lee woke up, somebody had taken the envelope that was inside of his coat pocket. And he lost that letter, never saw it again, never saw his father again. They made several stops in Texas towns and finally on the sixth day, someone adopted one of his brothers. Didn't want all of them, but took the one. Then a couple days later, a family adopted Lee and his other brother, took them home. But after getting there, they decided they didn't want Lee So they sent him to another house. So Lee is at a new house and it's a farming family and and he's a little boy from New York City. He knows nothing about farming. And one day he mistakenly left the cages of the chicken coops open. And when the farmer came home and he saw what he had done, he was so upset that that very same day he sent Lee away. He went back into the system. And so at eight years old, Lee lost his father. He rode a train from New York to Texas. He was kicked out of two different houses, separated from both of his brothers. It was about all that his little heart could take. And then finally, he was taken to the home of a tall man and a short, plump little woman. And during that first supper at their table, he said nothing. He was just expecting to get kicked out. So he went to bed that night and as he lay in bed, he just plotted his runaway. The next morning, Lee gets up for breakfast and he's sitting there at a table with a spread of biscuits and gravy. And while he's there at the table, he's so hungry and so he reaches out to take one of the biscuits off the table and and when he does, something happens. And I just want to read from his own telling of the story, what happened in that moment. Mrs. Nailing stopped me. Not until we've said grace, she explained. I watched as they bowed their heads. Mrs. Nailing began speaking softly to our father. Thanking him for the food and the beautiful day. I knew enough about God to know that the woman's our father was the same one who was the our father who art in heaven prayer that visiting preachers had recited over us at the orphanage but i couldn't understand why she was talking to him as though he were sitting here with us waiting for his share of the biscuits i began to squirm in my chair then mrs nailing thanked god for the privilege of raising a son i started i stared as she began to smile she was calling me a privilege And Mr. Nailing must have agreed with her because he was beginning to smile too. For the first time since I boarded the train, I began to relax. A strange warm feeling began to fill my aloneness and I looked at the empty chair next to me. Maybe in some mysterious way, our father was seated there and was listening to the next softly spoken words. She said, help us make right choices as we guide him. And help him make the right choices too. Dig in, son. The man's voice startled me. 
I hadn't even noticed the amen. My mind had stopped at the choices part. As I heaped my plate, I thought about that. Hate and anger and running away had seemed to be my only choices. But maybe there were others. This Mr. Nailing didn't seem so bad. And this thing about having an Our Father to talk to shook me up a little. I ate in silence. After breakfast, as they walked me to the barber shop for a haircut, we stopped at each of the six houses on the way. Each time, the Nailings introduced me as our new son. As we left the last house, I knew that at the first light the next day, I would not be running away. There was a hominess here that I had never known before. At least, I could choose to give it a try. And there was something else. Although I didn't know where Papa was or how I could write to him, I had a strong feeling that I had found not one, but two new fathers. And I could talk to both of them. And that is exactly what happened. And can I tell you this morning that that's what grace offers us. The grace of Jesus says to us, you've been chosen to be adopted into God's family. That's what grace does for us today. It chooses to adopt us. Now there's some of you, when I say that, you can picture it. You can picture yourself standing on the platform, all dressed up, as God comes by and inspects your life and checks your teeth and looks at your past. And you, you sit here today with a, a fearful vantage point of thinking that God might pass you over and not pick you, but that's not the way that God handles adoption. That's not the way that God does it. He doesn't come by and scrutinize our life and pick his favorites and, and look over the ones that seem like they wouldn't be very good for him and his family. No, that's not the way he does it at all. In fact, I want to read to you out of the book of Ephesians, out of the New Living Translation, a verse that tells us exactly what God has done. Listen to these words. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. To be holy without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. By bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. Last week, Easter Sunday. We talked about how Jesus declared himself, I love my church. Jesus came. He lived a sinless life for the church. He died a substitutionary death for the church. Not only that, He conquered death. He rose for the church. He sits at the right hand of God today praying for the church. And the Bible promises that He is coming again for the church. He loves the church. And I want to tell you today, when you put your faith in that work, in what Jesus Christ has done, then what you do is you receive God's invitation of adoption into his family. Here's the way it says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5. It says, God sent him, Jesus, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Can I tell you today, the incredible thing about adoption is this. Adopted children are chosen children. I've heard of unplanned pregnancies, but I've never heard of an unplanned adoption. 
They're chosen children. And God chose us. And I want you to know today that, that the adoption is not just a vertical adoption with God. It's also horizontal. That God has adopted you and He's put you in a family. He's put you in a, a community of believers. You're not just a son or a daughter of God. You are in the family of God. And I just want to tell you this morning in this series today that I love my church because it means I have a family. Now, I have a good family outside of the church. I'm grateful for my parents, my brothers, my sisters-in-law. I'm so grateful for my wife and my own children. I've got a good family. But there's something that God has provided for me in the family of God. And maybe you're here today and, and you don't have a great family situation. Maybe you're the only one left in your family. But the Bible says this, God sets the lonely... In families. He sets the lonely in families. God has put us in a family. Are you there in 1 John? Go to chapter 4 with me. I want to look at verse 9. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 9. It says this. Is how God showed his love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is how God showed His love to us. He sent His Son, Jesus. Now, He clarifies. Look at the next verse. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now listen, maybe some of you need to hear this message today. In fact, this is the reason that you came to church. Because you need to know that God has a plan for you. You need to know that God wants you to be a part of His family. That He wants to adopt you to be His son or His daughter today. If that's you, if you, if you're hearing this and you're going, man, that's, that's just, that's, that's amazing. You need to just right now in this moment begin to open your heart up to hear what God's invitation is to you today. Because for the rest of this message, I want to speak to us that already understand that. But you can get in on this thing. Because God doesn't put you on the platform. He doesn't inspect your life and compare it to anybody else's. So you should stop doing that now too. Because I know how it is. We all do it. We look around at everyone else and, and we want to see how we measure up and how things are going in our life versus everyone else's life. God doesn't do that. God chose you before you got off the train. In fact, the Bible says He chose you. He predestined you for adoption before creation. Wrestle with that in your mind. Before creation, He predestined you for adoption. He wants you in His family. You can be in His family today by just putting faith in what we celebrated at the table of the Lord today. What we sang about. By putting our confidence in the hope of salvation. His name is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to get to God. And He is our adoption certificate. Signed in blood. But if you're here today and you say, you know what, I I get that. I know that. I'm a son of God. I have sonship. And you, you already know that because you have sonship, that you have privileges. The Bible says in Ephesians 3 that we can approach God with freedom and confidence because we're sons of God. 
We, we can come boldly, just like the, the president's daughter can march right into his office. Nobody else's kid can do that, but they have sonship rights. They have family privileges. And so God says we can approach the throne of God with confidence today because we're sons of God. The Bible tells us because we understand our sonship in Christ that God is a good father. Hebrews 11 says that God is a father who gives good gifts to his children. Especially the Holy Spirit. He wants to give you His Spirit to live inside of your life. To empower you. To be everything that He's called you to be. That's the blessing that we have. And and you understand that today. Well, if you get that, and I think most of us do. Then I want you to look hard at the next verse in 1 John 4. Because this verse is for you today. It says, dear friends, verse 11. Since God... So loved us, we also ought to love one another. Can I tell you why I love the church today? Because Jesus commanded me to. He said you have to. Sometimes I love the commands. How about you? Sometimes not so much. Here's what I've found. It's easy to love Jesus. He's perfect. I mean, it's easy to love Jesus. What's not to love about Jesus? But he didn't just say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. He commanded that I love the church. Turn with me to Big John now. We've been in Little John. Let's go to the Gospel of John. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. John chapter 13. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I want to set the stage for you here. John chapter 13. I just want you to understand what's happening in the text. Because this is a really significant pivotal moment in fact we're in the scene that i described earlier as we shared communion together this is the moment of the last supper this is right before jesus goes to the garden to pray this is right before he's arrested and put on a mock trial and taken to the cross he's about to die he knows he's about to die he's already told the disciples several times i'm going to jerusalem i'm going to be handed over to the authorities they're going to arrest me they're going to kill the son of man but in three days i'm going to rise again this is the last supper these are the final instructions that jesus is going to give to his disciples before he goes to the cross and to add to the urgency of the moment what we're about to look at takes place right after judas iscariot goes to betray Jesus. They're all sitting around the table. Seems like a nice meal. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all going, what, what? And Peter looks over to John, and he says, ask him who? It's in there. And then John says, Jesus, who's going to betray you? And Jesus says, the one that I share this piece of bread with. And he dips it in the sop. And he hands it to Judas. I'm going to talk about an awkward dinner moment. And he says, what you do, do quickly. And Judas gets up from the table and he leaves. And I'm going to promise you, you can hear a pin drop in the room at this moment. I mean, nobody even wants to exhale. 
They're just like, did that just happen? And it's in that atmosphere that Jesus uses this platform in this moment to communicate something to them. Look at it with me. John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Let me tell you what I think is interesting about this. For one, love one another is not a new command. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. And when he said that, immediately they thought, oh, that's, that's Leviticus 19.18. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's not a new, that's not a new commandment, Jesus. Love one another. You, you, we knew that. We grew up learning that. But that wasn't the part that was new. Loving others as I have loved you. That's the revolutionary part. That's where it all changes. That's where it all becomes different. Paul said the same thing when he was giving instructions to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. He said, husbands, love your wives. Nothing really overtly Christian about that statement. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of Buddhist or Hindu or, or, or even Muslim husbands that, that love their wives. But Paul didn't end there. He said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Game changer. Jesus gave his life for the church. He, he gave all that he has, all that he is for the church. He sacrificed himself for the church. A few weeks ago when we started our series here, I talked about some of the many words that we interpret with the one single word in the English language as love. We just have that one word, but in the Bible there's a lot of different uh, words that define more clearly the type of love it is so that we can distinguish in the text the difference between I love my job or I love cornflakes or I love my wife. Different kinds of love. And we talked about some of those kinds of love. So when you read the commandment in the Old Testament that says, love your neighbor, that's talking about a appropriate affection, a familial love. To just have appropriate affection towards people. Love people the way you love yourself. But when Jesus said it, he said, a new command I give you. He used that word agape. And some of you remember we talked about that word a little bit. Agape is a word for love that means sacrificial love. It means total commitment. Agape love is decision love. It's a deep personal decision to sacrifice for somebody else's good. That's what agape love is. We see it pictured in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, Lord, I don't want to go to the cross. If there's any other way to save the world outside of the cross, that's, that's my desire. Nevertheless, that's agape. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I choose to do what's necessary to love lost people in spite of my own desires. That's what Jesus said, love each other. That's the way you're supposed to love one another. This is the new command that I'm giving you. He's not saying, love one another, church. Love one another because I just want everybody to get along. That's not the goal of the church. 
that, you know, if we could all just get along, if we could just have, you know, a, a happy time together and not have any tension and if there was never any fighting and, and bickering between believers, that would be great. Listen, that, that would be great. But that is not Jesus' goal. He's never strayed from his singular focus. And the Bible tells us in Luke 19.10 what that focus was. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He had a mission. To seek and save lost people. And that's why Jesus, in this pivotal moment, right before the cross, he says, here's a new command. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Look at it there. The greatest testimony of the church is not our music. It's not our humanitarian efforts. It's not compassion. It's not outreach events. It's not our programs that we put together. It's not even the preaching of the word. The greatest testimony of the church is the way that we share love with one another. That's what Jesus said. The world. Look at verse 35. By this, he says, by this love you have for one another, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How are they going to know? Easter eggs? How are they going to know? Boys clubs? Girls clubs? Witness wear t-shirts? Bumper stickers? How are they going to know? Probably the bumper stickers, right? Because you love one another. The world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. The way we show love to one another. It's the greatest test. If that's the greatest testimony about our Lord. The way that we share life together. And let me just ask this rhetorical question. Don't you think it might be important that we share life together? I mean, if it's the most significant way that we demonstrate that we are the body of Christ. The way that we have love for one another. Then I think suffices to say that we ought to be committed. To doing life together. To sharing with one another. And this morning, I I just want to speak towards the culture of the church. And at the same time, I want to push back against the invading culture that we live in. A culture that is more and more being overwhelmed by isolation. I mean, thanks to technology today, we are more connected than we've ever been. Right over here, it's kind of funny as I think about it. I've got one. I got an iPad right here. I got another one right here. I got a third one right here. And a smartphone. I'm more connected than anybody would ever need to be connected. We're so connected. I mean, right now, you could, you could communicate to hundreds of people that you came to church today. It'd be real easy. All you got to do is you got a smartphone, just pull it out and go to the Wrightsville Church. You can pull us up and you can just click one button and check in. You can just type a little personal message. Enjoying church today. Pastor's talking about you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Send that to a friend. <laughs> well, I mean, just that quick. You, you, can just, you can do it. You can just pull up the message. Just, just check in. 
And, and everybody, you know, it used to be just the people that lived in your neighborhood. They saw your garage door open. They saw your car pull out. They saw you go to the block and they go, oh, they're going to church. Now we're so connected, they don't have to live next to you. You can just check in. Oh, they're going to Chili's today. We're, we're so plugged in. We're so connected to everyone at all times. We're constantly connected to one another. But here's what I'm noticing. Maybe you've noticed it too. Our, our phones might be getting smarter, but they're making us mute. People have forgotten the art of conversation. Have you noticed? People don't even know how to talk to anybody anymore. If you have teenagers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember driving up to pull up some students for a youth event. And I get outside of their house. And so I pull out my cell phone and I call them to say I'm here. But they don't answer the call. They reject the call. And they send me a text message that says, be right out. Why didn't you just answer the phone when I called you? Frowny face. Right? I mean, that, that's, what, that's what we've done. Our phones have caused us to be mute. We've replaced real community with a virtual one. We've replaced real conversation with edited cliff notes of one. Real emotion has been substituted by emoticons. And we're losing. At the same time, technology is making us more connected than ever before. But I think we're also maybe getting more disconnected than ever before. And yet the Bible says that the way that the world, above all other ways, will know that we are Christ followers is by the way that we love one another. By the way that we do life together. By the way that we connect with each other. And I just want to push back against what has become the, the standard in our culture and has crept in on us as the people of God. That, that we're content to just think that because we're all in the same space, either uh, in reality or in virtual reality, that we're all friends. I don't know how many of your friends on social media actually sit down and have dinner with you once a year. But for me, it's very few. I mean very, very few of the people that I'm quote-unquote friends with. I don't actually have community with those people. We just hawk each other's pictures. That's, we, just, we just look at what's going on in other people's lives. We're, we're a mile wide and an inch deep in community. And yet Jesus said, this is, the, this is the command that you have to get. I'm, I mean, I'm going to the cross in a couple hours. But before I go, hear this. The world will know that you're my disciples because you have love for one another. Not because you like each other's status. Not because you show up at the same place once a week. Look at the back of the same head for an hour and a half. But because you love one another. Because you do life together. 
And, and I just want to push back against that and, and challenge you to, to really lean into what God is calling us to be as the church because I'm so grateful for the proclamation of the gospel. And I'm so grateful for the outreach opportunities. And I'm so grateful for the worship experience that we share collectively on a Sunday morning. But Jesus told me that those things are not going to be the most effective things to reach the world. I live in a neighborhood just like you. And most of the people around my house know I'm a pastor. And I just want to tell you, they're not impacted at all by what I'm doing right now. But last summer, and the summer before that, we had a small group that met at my house once a week. And so one night out of the week, cars began to fill up on 5th Street outside of my house. And the blinds were open so the sun could shine in. In front of our big picture window... And as we gathered together inside my living room with some of you every week and we talked and we opened the word and we prayed for one another and we drank coffee together and we ate cookies together and the sun began to set and the light stayed on and we became a sight to see. For everybody that walked by and drove by, they could look right in the window. And that's the closest most of my neighbors have come to hearing me preach. They saw the church being the church. They're not looking in these windows. God is calling us to get past the anonymity of isolationism. The the ability to just kind of slip in and smile and do church and then slip back out. God's calling us to really invest ourselves in one another's lives. Let let me just tell you quickly about a story in Luke chapter 5. Many of you will know this story, but this was the moment when Jesus called the first disciples. He was there at the shores of the lake of Gennesaret, and he's walking along, and the Bible says he sees two boats there, and he sees these fishermen, and what are they doing? Some of you Sunday school students, you should know. They were, they were mending their nets, remember? They were cleaning up. And there was a crowd there to hear Jesus. And so he borrows one of the boats. He steps in the boat and he teaches the people. And when he's all done, he turns to Peter, one of these fishermen. And he said, hey, let's push on out to the deep end for a catch. And I don't have time to tell the whole story. But reluctantly, Peter goes along with it. And he says, okay, we'll go along. And, and so they, they, they go fishing and, and they throw their net. Even though they fished all night and and now it's really too late to catch anything. At your word, Jesus will let down the nets. And they let down the nets and the Bible says they caught so many fish. Verse 6, Luke 5 says the nets almost broke. And so quickly they called to John, uh, James and John and they said, get over here. And so they bring their boat over and they help them and they pull in this miraculous catch of fish. And then Jesus responds to that moment. As they're, they're just in awe of what just happened. And they begin to realize that this is, this is supernatural. This is not luck. We've done this too long. We know that this guy has the goods. There's something about him that it even inspires Peter to begin to worship. And Jesus says, from this day forward, you'll be fishers of men. The reason I tell you that story in the context of this message today is because I got to thinking about the qualifications of these guys and why Jesus would stick with the metaphor of fishing. Obviously, it wasn't because of their fishing skills. I mean, they had fished all night and caught nothing. But he says, you know what? I can use those guys. And I just was thinking about that story and thought, what, what is it that, that they did that Jesus thought was good? 
that he would use them in this illustration, in this metaphor of fishing to talk about evangelism. And then I started thinking about what it was they were doing that caught Jesus' attention. They were mending the nets. The Bible says they had fished all night, caught nothing. They could have been frustrated. They could have been mad, tired, hot. I just want to go home. Now this this rabbi is standing in my boat. They could have just taken the nets and thrown them in a pile and said, you know what, we'll deal with it tomorrow. But they weren't doing it. They were, they were mending the net. They were, they were preparing for the next opportunity. You know what this was? This was a, this was a first century network. This was network. They were mending the nets. They were getting them prepared. And isn't it interesting that three and a half years later, after they've been discipled, after they've been trained, after they've been commissioned, Jesus has died on the cross. Peter, who had heard Jesus say, you are a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Great and mighty Peter had backed off. When they arrested Jesus, and when the pressure got too hot, he snuck away in the night. Three times he denied Jesus. Jesus went to the cross without his friend. He went to the grave. But three days later, he rose from the grave. And the Bible says that on that same shore, in John chapter 21, on the same shore, Jesus shows up, the resurrected Lord, with nail scars in his hands and feet. He shows up, and they're out there fishing again, and he calls to him. Have you caught anything? No, we haven't caught anything. See, they're still great fishermen. Try throwing your net on the other side of the boat. Oh, yeah, we'll do that. Like, we haven't done that before. (laughs) So they throw their net on the other side of the boat. And the Bible says again, the boat almost sinks because of the fish. So they're they're pulling them in, they're pulling them in. And about halfway through the, the, the chaos of fish flopping in and out of the boat, it dawns on Peter. What is happening? The Bible says he just throws off his outer garment and jumps in and swims to the shore to meet Jesus. And Jesus has a conversation with him right there. And it's there on that shore. Jesus doesn't say, now, Peter, I want you to go cast the net. No. What does he do? He says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. In other words, take... Take care of the net. Do what you were doing when I first found you. Mend the net. Don't don't let the hall slip through. Because how many times does that happen in the church? We throw out the net. We invite people to Jesus. They go, Jesus sounds like a good idea. I'm lost and, and my life's messed up. And if you've got an answer, I'll take an answer. And so we go out and we reach lost people. But because we don't mend the net, we lose the catch. And the back door of the church becomes a revolving door. Can I just remind you this morning, remind all of us, as much as we want to celebrate salvations, because the Bible celebrates salvations, heaven, the Bible says, rejoices at salvation's moment. We celebrate that. That's not what we were called to. When Jesus commissioned the church, he didn't say, go into all the world and make converts. What did he say? Make disciples. Make disciples. If you want to know if you're building something right, you go back to the blueprints. And so if we want to know if we're doing it right, we ought to just go back to the book of Acts. 
Because the book of Acts communicates to us how this thing is done. And the disciples, when they started, they just did what they saw Jesus do. You know what Jesus did? He spent time with them. He did life with the disciples. They had relationship together. I mean, he, he hung out with them. And in Acts chapter 2, the Bible tells us what they did when they started the church. This is right on the tail end of the first sermon ever preached after Easter. So how appropriate that I would be there on my first sermon after Easter. Peter's just preached. Thousands of people have gotten saved. The church is officially underway. And here's what the Bible says about that church. Acts chapter 2 in verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Can I just read that verse again? All the believers were together and had everything in common. They met together. They met daily. They did life together. They had relationship with one another. It's just not enough. If we're going to be a church that is infectious, if we're going to be a a church that is contagious, if we're going to be the best illustration to the world that we are God's children, that we are adopted, that we are a part of a family, it's not going to happen by coming and, and learning from one voice every Sunday. There has to be more intentionality about what it means to be a part of the church. I hope she doesn't mind me saying this. I don't want to embarrass anyone. But I was so blessed last Saturday by Sister Donna. And a lot of you guys don't know uh, her because she's only been a part of the church here for about two months. First Sunday in February, I think, she came to Wrightsville. But last Saturday, she showed up to help with the outreach. And we had just a quick conversation, and and it went kind of something like this. She said, I really don't know that many people, but, you know, I'm just here to help. You know, you got to get involved. You just got to, you got to jump in. And I thought, man, you're exactly right. Praise God. She's exactly right. And here's what blessed me about it. Because she just jumped in, and she said, you know what? This is community, and God's called me to community. And I'm going to meet somebody, and I'm going to get involved, and I'm going to help. And by the end of the day, I was watching her and Sister Diane back there in the kitchen, like chumming around, and just flying around and working together. You guys look like you've gone to the same church for 35 years. But it happens when we go, you know what? I'm supposed to be, it's more than just coming and worshiping. I'm going to be a part of community. I'm going to be a part of the body of Christ. Because when this community comes, they're not just coming and going, wow, man, that's a lot of eggs. What they're going to see is the family of God working together, loving one another, serving one another. The Bible says that they will know. There's something different about those folks over there. Something different. They'll know that we are his disciples because we have love for one another. The Bible calls us, calls us to Christian community. That's different than what you get on the golf course or in the bar. Christian community, the word is koinonia. It means fellowship. It means participation. It means sharing. 
And it means contribution. That's what God's called us to. To contribute, to be a part of it. You know, someone once said there's two types of people in the world. There's the one kind of person that walks into the room and says, here I am. And then there's the other type of person that walks into a room and they're more interested and they say, there you are. But then someone else added to that and said, the truth is, there's a third kind of person that walks into the room and says, here we are. And that's a person that gets community. That's a person that understands the significance of what it means to come together. And, and as we close this service today, I, I just want to... I want to commend you today in this. You have something to offer to to us, to me, to this family of God. Not only something that you could offer, but something that Jesus commanded that you do offer. Because Christian community, koinonia, means contribution. It means you're going to add to the life of what's going on. It may be friendship that somebody desperately needs. It may be accountability for a brother or sister who needs somebody to... Hold them accountable so they don't slip up again. It might be empathy. Some of you are so good at that. You make me jealous of your your gift of God. There's times where I stand and and people are telling me what's going on in their life and I'm listening. And then somebody else is next to me and they just begin to pour out empathy. And I'm like, I'm the pastor. I should be doing that. But you're just so much better at it than me. But it's your gift and it's something that God wants to use you. And some of you, it's prayer. Man, we had a beautiful time of prayer this last Wednesday night. Every Wednesday night, we come together from 7 to 8 o'clock and, and we pray. We pray for you. We pray for this church. We pray for each other. And there's been many times, just since the first of this year, that I've been so blessed by the body of Christ praying for me. Some of you, God wants you to be a mentor. You say, I, don't, I, don't, I can't teach. I can't sing. Yeah, but you live right. Like some of us hadn't figured that out yet. You just live right. That's, you're good at that. You're good at not screwing up your marriage. Some of us haven't figured that out yet. And so God needs you to just mentor somebody. You know how to run your business and there's other people that are failing at it. And they just need somebody to encourage them. Some of you, God wants to use you to be an encourager. Or to give acts of service. One of the guys came up and mowed the lawn this week. Serving the church. You know, if we didn't have guys that did that, it'd get done. But we'd have to take it out of the tithes and the offerings and pay somebody to do it. But praise God, somebody loves the church. And so they serve. Gifts of hospitality, on and on and on. You've got something to offer. Uh, last story, and then we'll close this service. I was reading, a, I was reading about uh, the, the Chicago Bulls. Back in, 19, back in 1990, the NBA season... Michael Jordan dropped 69 points on the Cleveland Cavaliers in one game. 69 points in one game. It was absolutely an epic performance. And after the game, one of the reporters came over to Stacey King and said, how are you going to remember this epic performance tonight? Now, here's what you got to know about Stacey King. He watched most of the game from the sideline. He sat on the bench most of the game. In fact, he scored one point. The whole game. And that's what made his answer to the question such an instant classic. He responded to that reporter. He said, I will always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. <laughs> I got to be honest. In heaven's stat sheet, I don't even know if I'm going to get credit for one point. But I get the W. I get the win. 
because I'm on the team and you get the win. I don't know if you read the back of the book, but can I just spoil it for you? We win. The church wins. We win. And you've got something to contribute. It might be one point, but you've got something to contribute. God has called you to do it. And so today, I just want to challenge you to lift up your eyes. Same way you would tell your kids at the dinner table. Put the phone away. I'm right here. Lift up your eyes. And and look at the community that God has placed you in. And look at the family that God has given us. And just ask Him, God, how can I, how can I represent your glory better? And know that the answer to that prayer is as simple as loving the community of God together. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, there are people in this church that are praying specific prayers, saying, God, how are you going to use me to minister to our church on a smaller, on a smaller level? I've had many conversations in the last three or four weeks with men and women who, who feel like God's put something on their heart to do. And I just, I just want to say, here's, here's what we're looking for. We're not, we're not saying, okay, let's create another program for the church. We're saying, you know what, as the body of Christ, we've got to do as much as this is great. I love this. But to love the church is to do more than to come on Sunday morning and do this. We've got to connect. And I just want you to know, as your pastor, that this building... Whether we use it or not, we pay for it 365 days out of the year, 24-7. You know, and we're more than happy to pay the light bill if there's ministry going on here. This building is available Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, most of Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And there's a lot of people that say, well, I don't want to do Christian community because I don't like having people in my house. Or, you know, like, I don't, my house isn't big enough. And, and so we've talked about things like small groups in the past. And immediately people push back. Understand that the goal is community, not meeting in somebody's house. Now, we're going to be starting some small groups here in the next few weeks. I, I love it. I'm going to have people in my house. We've been talking about it. Some of you guys are nodding your head because you know it. We love it. You're going to be coming to my house. Some others of you, you're going to start small groups. And so you'll hear us talk about those things. But listen, there might be somebody here that says, you know what, I would love to do a 10 a.m. Tuesday morning women's Bible study at the church. You know what, I think that's biblical. I don't have to think too hard about it. Maybe, maybe some of you here goes, you know what, we just, we just want to get together and, uh, you know, once a month during the warm months, we want to get some guys together to go play golf over here. I know that's God. <laughs> but we're not just going to talk about the course and our score. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to have koinonia. We're going to have fellowship. We're going to contribute into each other's life. God wants His glory to radiate from this house. But it won't happen because we turn the music up louder or preach longer it's going to happen because we love one another